Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, public policy, and sometimes uh, sports and entertainment, uh, which is the direction that we're going in today. We're very excited for today's SALT Talk. The SALT Talks is a digital interview series with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And what we're trying to do on SALT Talks is replicate the experience that we provide at our global conferences, the SALT Conference, which we host twice a year, once in the United States and once internationally. And what we're trying to do on these SALT Talks and at our conferences is provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big and interesting ideas that are shaping the future. And we're very excited today to welcome Stephen A. Smith to SALT Talks. Stephen A. is a former newspaper beat writer and columnist for 18 years, and he's become unquestionably ESPN's most recognizable personality and most visible studio analyst. Since joining ESPN in 2003, Stephen A. has been a fixture on SportsCenter, primarily as the worldwide leader's premier NBA analyst, which included NBA Shootaround and NBA Fast Break, and he also hosts SportsCenter with Stephen A. Smith. In 2005, he was given his own national television show, quite frankly, on ESPN2 with Stephen A. Smith, which was a one-hour weeknight show featuring sports, news, opinions, issues, headlines, and interviews, which lasted for 327 shows from, uh, from August of 2005 to January of 2007. Stephen A. has been the co-host of ESPN2's First Take since May of 2012, which moved to the main network ESPN in 2016. From a clerk and a writer at the Winston-Salem Journal in my home state of North Carolina from 1991 to 1992, to an editorial assistance position at the Greensboro News and Record in 1992 and 1993, from a high school writer's position at the New York Daily News from 1993 to 94, to a career at the Philadelphia Inquirer from 94 to 2010, he started as a college beat writer to now becoming the uh, foremost NBA analyst and one of only 21 uh, African-Americans in American history elevated to the position of general sports columnist uh, in 2003 in March at that time. Uh, Smith, considering his success in all three mediums by all accounts is one of the most successful journalists and commentators of the modern era. And again, we're very excited to have uh, Stephen A. with us on Salt Talks today. If you have any questions for Stephen, you can enter them in the Q&A box at the bottom of your video screen on Zoom. And hosting today's interview is Anthony Scaramucci, the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, which is a global alternative investment firm. Anthony is also the chairman of SALT. And with that, I'll turn it over to Anthony for the interview. John, you left out one thing. He's probably been voted best dressed by GQ at some point in his career. Okay, You have to remember, I'm old enough to remember Lindsey Nelson, who used to wear those flamboyant sports jackets. So, Stephen A., welcome to Salt Talks. It's an honor to have you on. How did we go from sports journalism to ESPN? What was the trigger? Well, for me, uh, you know, I was, I was breaking stories a lot. I was a newspaper writer for the Philadelphia Inquirer. I started my career as a high school sports reporter for the New York Daily News from 93 to 94, and then I went to the Philadelphia Inquirer in 1994. And in 1998, there was an NBA lockout. The owners had locked the players out in pursuit of a new collective bargaining uh, a deal. And at that particular moment in time, everybody was trying to figure out what was going on as negotiations stalled, halted, progressed, et cetera, all different types of things that were going on, as, as you well know, that's what happens in that world. And during that particular moment in time, I was breaking a lot of stories. I had sources that were on the executive committee that was on the negotiating committee uh, for both respective sides. and. You know, I was lucky and fortunate enough to get access to a lot of information that a lot of people didn't have. And so when the television networks needed somebody to talk about these things, Comcast locally, mainly in Philadelphia, Bruce Beck, who works in, in, on, in, at NBC in New York City now, at the time was working uh, for uh, NBC in uh, Philadelphia. And he would have me on and others would have me on Comcast and they couldn't afford to pay me. Uh, I told them, you don't have to just make a copy of my appearances and give me a copy of it. I used that and I used those appearances and turned it into a portfolio. And then I showed it to CNN SI, that was CNN Sports Illustrated, uh, which was an existing sports network at the time. And CNN had partnered with 
Sports Illustrated. And I started off, they hired me on the spot. And then that um, that developed into a deal with uh, Fox Sports Net two years later in 2001. And then in 2003, ESPN came calling. So that's really how the television portion of my career in terms of sports broadcasting actually started. So you and I both know television is not easy. 17 years on television and you have this very unique style. Uh, you reek of authenticity. Stephen, there are budding television presenters, sports journalists, broadcasters, et cetera, watching today. Uh, what would you say to them about the travails of television? And what's your experience there? What do you recommend to them? And how did you develop your style? Well, that, the last part of that question is always the most difficult for me to answer because I didn't have any kind of broadcasting training whatsoever. Uh, my attitude when I looked at broadcasters was that you needed to smile and know how to read a prompter. The latter part was very easy for me. The former, not so much, because I'm not a smiler. I'm not the George Foreman type, as they say. I don't just cheese for the cameras. You make me laugh, I laugh. You make me smile, I smile. But I'm not going to fake it just to show, to give a pleasant view or a pleasant demeanor. That's just not my MO. And so for me, when I had the newspaper background, I knew that there was substance attached to me because I was a reporter and I was digging for information. I was in constant pursuit of the truth, not just looking for the license to editorialize and opine. And as a result, because I knew I had that content, okay, when you get in front of the camera and the light comes on and the lights come on, then really it's just all I had was for me to be me. So the manner in which I speak, the way I articulate myself, the way I disseminate information, et cetera, that has always been my way. And as a result, it just stuck. So when people ask me, you know, how can I do this? How can I be like you or whatever? I'm like, well, for better or worse, there's only one me. You know, I'm just, I, I, I just say what I feel based on the facts and the information that I have before me. This is where I stand. This is how I feel in the moment. I'm not afraid to correct myself. I'm not afraid to admit I'm wrong on a rare occasion that I believe that I am. Um, and that's just my mentality. And as long as you do it coming from that perspective, there's a level of, of humanity that's attached to you, a willingness to admit that you're wrong, a willingness to be real and authentic. Because what I'm trying to convey to the audience, I want them to know they can trust me. And what I mean by that is not just trust my information, but trust that I believe what I'm telling you. If I stand, if I need to be corrected, I need to be corrected, but I'm not faking anything. I'm coming at you from that perspective. And because of that, that I believe is what has been able to propel me. So when I look at people in this industry, I would tell them all that glitters isn't gold. Be ready to put your head down and go about the business of doing the work don't get caught up in the sizzle, get caught up in the work. Don't get caught up in the culminating point, the end result, get caught up in the process because there's usually a long and lengthy process that comes before the actual accomplishment. And if you're not married to that, if you're not enjoying that, then you're not gonna enjoy your job. And the difference between most people's job and my job is when I'm speaking to people you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, actually at this point in time in my career, it's tens of millions of people per day. The bottom line is, is that if I don't enjoy it and I'm not passionate about it and I don't feel what I'm talking about, the first people that are gonna notice is that audience. And before long, they'll be gone looking to find someone else that inspires them or that ingratiates themselves with them to a point where they're willing to gravitate towards them. All right, but you, you've got this unique thing going. Uh, you know it and I know it and God bless you for it. And so, you know, for me, I was getting hit in the head with a wooden spoon by my Italian Nona. Right. Uh, I had to fight it out at the, at the uh, dinner table on Sundays with my cousins. Mm -hmm. And that was my media training. Uh, where did you get the media training from? Was oh, it okay. So if you put it, well, if you put it that way, I mean, that's easy. I'm the youngest of six. I have four, I have four older sisters that were living. I'm, I'm surprised you have a 32 inch waist if you're the youngest of six. I mean, you can find it out all day, right? It's actually 36 and counting is going down. Uh, but but the point is, is that I got, I've got four older sisters 
uh, that beat me up figuratively, literally at times. They were they were my litmus test per se. Uh, a few of them no sports. My you're dad taking got all of that out on the Dallas Cowboys, right? Or all of that like popping of the for me with the Dallas Cowboys, it's really not about them. It's about their fans. I think Dallas Cowboy fans are the most disgusting, nauseating fan base in American history. They make me sick, and there's nothing in life that makes me more happy when it comes to sports than to see them miserable. I think Dallas Cowboy fans are the worst human beings alive. It doesn't matter if they go one and 15 and the season ends on a January 5th at, at 7 p.m. By 7.10, 7.15, they'll be telling you, you know we're going to win the Super Bowl next year, right? Just, they don't take any time to smell themselves at how stink they are. And that's what I can't stand about Dallas Cowboy fans, which is why I like rubbing their nose into it. And I must be thankful to the Dallas Cowboys because I like Jerry Jones. I really do. I like him. I like Jerry Jones a lot. And 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 the the Cowboys allure, the five billion dollar franchise brand that they are, major major props to him. But because of their fan base, it nothing pleases me more than to watch the Dallas Cowboys lose, especially during the holidays. I don't like it when they win, you know, they lose in September or October, but they'll win in January, February. No, I want them to lose around Thanksgiving, and I want that to flow right through Christmas so the whole holiday season is ruined. I don't wish anything like that upon anyone on this planet. But a Cowboys. Right, so I'm 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 going to take Mayor of Dallas off of your second act career, no problem. You still got to be a Cowboys fan. He might not be a Cowboys fan for all we know. No, you never know. You don't, you don't know. Might he might be governor of Texas. I mean, because some of Texas is anti-Dallas too. But let me but let me let me ask you this because uh, this is something I absolutely love about you. And of course, I've been watching it like everybody else for the 17 years. Okay. You take absolutely no bullshit, okay, ever from anybody. You call people out on it on the air. You interrupt them when you know that they're giving you malarkey. And so how did you get that detector going? Is that from your sisters too? Where did, where did, the, where did that sound detector come that's, from? That, that's, that's the streets. Uh, being from born in the Bronx, raised in Hollis, Queens, you know, um, walking the streets like, thank God I had the most wonderful mother on the planet, Earth, God rest her soul. Uh, that kept me off the streets in terms of me engaging in any illegal activity. But I certainly was surrounded by it in terms of the people that I knew. I grew up with drug dealers. I grew up with drug runners. I grew up, I drew, I grew up with guys that were relatively violent and whatever. And when you're from the streets and you have to survive in that stratosphere, particularly when you're operating on the right side of the tracks instead of the wrong side of the tracks, you've got to have your senses, your senses heightened. You've got to be alert at all times and you got to you got to be able to decipher what's real from the BS. People trying to set you up, trying to put you in compromising positions and things of that nature. You got to be alerted to all of that. And so growing up at a very young age, I knew that if I would, if I needed to survive in the streets, you know, I, uh, Ronald Reagan once said it best, if I remember correctly, trust but verify. If I remember, I think that came from him. Yeah. And that's been my mentality a lot. You know, I have, I'm fortunate and blessed to have great friends and family members in my inner circle who are tremendously loved by me. Um, they're very knowledgeable, they're very smart and what have you, but even with them, I'll double check what they have to say. I'll triple check what they have to say. That's just my MO and it comes from me. So, you know, in my neighborhood out on Long Island, there was a prolific drug culture. Uh, my uncle uh, owned a motorcycle shop. I worked in that motorcycle shop. I learned how to shoot craps at age 11. I learned how to drive a three-speed Dodge van at age three. So everybody who I'm running money for right now is <laughs> redeeming on my, on, on my phone, which is fine. Right. But I knew, despite that rough crowd, that I was going to try to go straight and I was going to try to do the right things and stay away from that stuff. You did too. Mm -hmm. So there was a moment. There was a seminal moment where that popped into your head, that little bubble popped into your head, Stephen. We said, this is the where I'm going. And so offer some guidance and perspective to some of the young people that are listening to us right now. What happened? Why did that bubble pop into your head and catalyze you in the direction that you're in? Well, a couple of things. Number one is love. The love of your loved ones closest to you who have your best interests at heart. Uh, that definitely goes a long way because even those who are operating on the wrong side of the tracks, they'll tell you, you don't need to be there. I had literally had drug dealers 
that would sit around and say, okay, this guy's trying to get a basketball scholarship. He's going somewhere. Do not bother him and would instruct the people working for them. Do not bother him. Let him shoot his hoops at 192 Park in Hollis, Queens, New York on 204th Street. Let him shoot his 200, 300 jump shots. Do not bother him. And then when it was time for them to do their business, they would say, it's time for you to get on out of here. So that was love right there. Number two, um, violence. Uh, because I saw somebody get gunned down right in front of my face. He got his head blown off right in front of me uh, when I was 10 years old. Uh, so that definitely went a long way. And we we sort of knew his background and what he was doing. And so it crystallized in your mind that if you're doing these kind of things, in all likelihood, that's how your life will probably end. And you have to ask yourself whether or not you wanted that. And then for me personally, again, I keep bringing up my mother because she worked so hard and she made so many sacrifices. When you have someone that you love as dearly as I love you, you want to make them proud and you don't want to disappoint them. And so you got to think about those things as you're striving to be something and to make something of yourself. And a lot of times when we see youngsters out there, they've got this what the coach John Cheney, the legendary coach John Cheney, who used to coach at Temple University, their basketball squad, he called it the microwave society. He despised the young, the mentality that youngsters have, wanting everything now and wanting everything to leapfrog the process without really working and maneuvering your way through it. And what I would encourage young people to do is not only should you go through the process, you should enjoy it because it elevates your level of knowledge. When you have to go through a certain terrain, a minefield, in order to get to where you want to go, then guess what? Once you get there, first of all, no one can question you because you got there the right way. And number two, no one can question your knowledge because you have experiences that most people didn't have. Look at you, Anthony, and all the things that you've been able to accomplish in your career and in your life. The number one thing, the number one reason people should recognize that you're on TV a lot of times talking when I see you on CNN and other places is because of your knowledge and experience. It's not just your ability. Yeah, you have the ability but you have a knowledge and a level of experience that comes along with it. So when you're talking, I see people listening to you and want to debate you. But then there are other times you're talking and people instinctually know to shut the hell up because you've been places they haven't been. That experience really buffers and augments you to another level that will ultimately enable you uh, to speak with a level of authority that could ultimately make you successful at whatever you do. And that's my philosophy. Well, let me tell you something, Stephen. I'm going to be clipping that and playing it for my wife, who happens to be the most expensive makeup artist in the world. <laughs> she thinks it's all about her makeup is the reason why I'm on television. I'm going to make sure uh, she... I'll, hold on, hold on. Wait a minute. I got to give you a piece of advice. Yeah, good. Let her believe that. Okay. All right. She's I take it back. She's the wife. So, somehow, my, you know, she's going to be watching this because she loves Stephen. So right. make sure you, cl you, you cut this piece out. Listen okay. to the wife. We'll cut that. No, no we're not, of course, we're not cutting anything. We're doing this live. Right. And so, so the, the thing I want to say to you that is so admirable of you is the grounding. Um, I can feel the grounding wire. And you have soared, my friend. And congratulations to you for that. And I hope you continue to soar to ever higher and higher heights. Thank you. But there is a grounding wire. You can see it on the air. I can see it right now in this interview. Uh, is that coming from your mom? Is that coming from your spirituality? Is that coming from your grace in terms of your gratitude for what uh, life is unfold the way life has unfolded for you? Uh, tell us about your grounding wire and how how you've been able to maintain it. Well, it, it, it it's all of the above, but it starts with mama uh, because mama was the one that worked hard. Mama was the one that worked sixteen hours a day, seven days a week, had one week's vacation a year just to feed us even though she was married to my dad for many years, uh, let's just say he wasn't as responsible as he should have been. And that put a lot of the onus on my mother's shoulders. And so to witness that and to witness her struggle, first it was an aspiration not to disappoint her. Then ultimately it became an aspiration to make her proud. And then the process of doing that, then you run into other people along the way who gravitate to you because of the character she helped instill in me. And so then, you know, from a spiritual perspective, I've got, uh, I go to Christian Cultural Center in Brooklyn, New York. My pastor is A.R. Bernard. Um, he's a phenomenal, phenomenal man. I love him dearly. He's always been there for me. Uh, and he's somebody that I, I trust implicitly. And so to, to have that kind of guidance definitely helps. Then you think about 
the family members that you have that my mother influenced, the people in the neighborhood that I grew up with that I know that I can trust. Because it's not always about people being the way you want them to be. It's about them being their unapologetic selves. They don't disguise it from you. You know who they are. And as a result, you can trust them to be exactly who you know them to be. And there's a benefit to that as well. And so all of those things come together and it helps develop you into the adult that you aspire to be because the challenges that inevitably are going to come your way, you know that you're prepared to deal with whatever because you've seen so much of it, because you've been so thoroughly prepared by the people you love and the people that love you that are a part of your inner circle. They buffer your knowledge, they buffer your conscience, they buffer a lot of different things that help make you better at what you do. So when I'm grounded, I'm grounded because of them as well, because just the same way I feel about them, they feel about me. And because there's a trust there, they can tell me anything. They can tell me when they think I'm wrong. They can tell me when they think that I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. They can tell me when they say, excuse me, you need to do this, you need to do that. They might lecture you, they might pester you. Sometimes you don't even want to listen to them, you don't want to hear it. But in the end, when you know they have both knowledge and two, a spirit and a heart about them when it comes to you that makes them trustworthy, you end up wanting to listen to them because you value them. The people I surround myself with are what keep me grounded right now because even though I'm Stephen A, to them, I'm Steve or I'm Steven. I'm not Stephen A. I'm the same dude that grew up in Hollis. Yeah, I might be a little bit more successful and certainly more recognizable, but the bottom line is they will not tolerate change from me because they loved me just the way that I was. Well, I, I mean, listen, I totally identify with that. I live two miles from where I grew up, and uh, I'm one of the few people that went to college in my family. Everybody's named Anthony because we're Italians. You know, that's my great-grandfather. Oh, my little name's Anthony, right? Right, right. I know that. No, of course I know that. Come on, man. Stephen A. But let me just say this, you know. I'm, I'm you know, I got, we got Anthony Autoglass. We have Anthony Clammer. We have Anthony Pizzeria. I'm just happy to be Anthony Hedge Fund on Christmas Eve. You know, just, oh, really? I'm quite sure they would rather be Anthony Hedge Fund. Yeah, yeah, no, no doubt, but trust me, they, they treat me like Anthony, you know what, low, on the bottom of the shoe, which is all good by me. Good. Before we get back to sports, though, I got to ask you this, because I'm really identifying with this conversation, uh, and it's a Tyson thing, you know, everybody's got a plan until they get smacked up in the face. Mm -hmm. Had setbacks. There's no way you're getting to be Stephen A from Stephen, Hollis, Queens, to where you are right now without setbacks. So describe your resiliency describe the methodology behind your resiliency and describe all that positivity that's gotten you to where you are you call it positivity i wouldn't a matter of fact i'd use the word uh, fear is a great great motivation for mm -hmm. me i see fear that. of failure fear of failure fear of disappointment Fear of having to live with myself, knowing that you may have failed because you didn't give it your all. Fear of poverty, Stephen. I've had the fear of poverty thing going my whole life. That's right. And, and fear of poverty is a big thing. And, I, and I'll tell you something right now. Um, the latest, I mean, obviously, I grew up poor and what have you, but the latest was in 2009. ESPN elects not to renew my contract. We had a contract dispute. Um, they, had, they elected not to renew my contract. And for a full year, I was unemployed, living off of my savings. More importantly, even though I thought I had established myself in the business, clearly I hadn't because no one was knocking on my door, uh, willing to hire me to be in television. And when you got a taste of it, I made my first million dollars in 2005 and, you know, thinking that I had arrived and what have you. And then all of a sudden, just four years later, everything, and I do mean everything, falls apart at the time that I was expecting to be a daddy. Um, it was incredibly scary because I grew up poor and I did not want my children to ever grow up uh, poor and struggling and starving and things of that nature. And I was literally, literally scared to death. And so that level of fear, man, I, for some reason, I put my head down. I do what I always do. I put my head down. I went to work. I pounded the pavement. I was tenacious. I persevered. Um, and then I got back. And when I got back two years later, the ESPN, because of after one year, I got hired by Fox Sports Radio to do their morning drive show for a year. And then after that, ESPN came calling me again. And I remember that my boss, who's my boss to this very day, my immediate supervisor's name is Dave Roberts, phenomenal boss, 
Um, I told him, I'm taking over. I said, the fall from grace, I, if you thought I couldn't be more motivated than I was before, watch out now. And so he always laughs and reminds me uh, of my work ethic, my dedication. I remember that one of the big bosses, his name was John Wildhack. He was an executive VP over uh, production for ESPN. He's now the athletic director at Syracuse University. And he introduced me to talk to the football team one time. And he said, I've been in the business for 35 years. I'm about to introduce our next speaker talking about me. He said he's the first man in, this, in, in, in my 35 years that I had to make take vacation. The dude doesn't stop. And that is a reputation I love to have. When am I off when the job is done? When am I finished when the job is done? I, lo I, love, it. I love it. You know, and I'm going to tell you something funny about Dave Roberts. So I'm on CNN on the morning show. Mm -hmm. And I'm doing it from my home studio, of course, because of COVID. Mm -hmm. And my wife comes down with the cordless phone and she says, do you know a Dave Roberts? And I said, no. And she said, well, there's a guy by the name of Dave Roberts on the phone. He wants to talk to you. I just gotten off the air. I pick up the phone. I said, hello. He says, I'm Dave Roberts from ESPN. I got your phone number by looking it up on Google. It's my <laughs> home number. Okay. He's cold calling me. Because I just want to tell you, man, you're awesome on television and keep up the good work. And yeah. that's Dave Roberts. Am I wrong about that or no? Yeah. Right? That's so it. Great call into the house. Now, him and I probably talk once or twice a month about what's mm -hmm. going on in the world and well, uh, sports and life and everything else. He's a winner. He's a winner. Whatever he touches turns to gold as far as I'm concerned. He, he, absolutely, he absolutely loves you. And uh, I, I, I have to – Turn it over to John Darcy in a second, because if we don't get these millennials in, then we don't get the ratings that I want. <laughs> okay, so I gotta, I, let got Dorsey, I gotta let Darcy in in a second, but I just gotta ask you two more quick questions, okay? Sure. Uh, I, wanna, I want your favorites for the Super Bowl. You've been thinking about mm -hmm. it. Who are your favorites? Well, I had Tampa Bay at the beginning of the season, but right now I'm thinking the Kansas City Chiefs versus the Green Bay Packers. All right, that'll be an exciting game. Um, second question, of the leagues, COVID-19, who handled it the best, of the pro leagues? Without question, the NBA. That's an easy one right there. When you consider the sacrifices that the players made, combined with the team and the league itself, how organized they were. They went like the last couple of months or so. They didn't have I – mean, I'm, I'm talking about their whole time in the bubble. They didn't have one single positive test. It was unbelievable. Uh, you had players holding other players accountable. Uh, one player just snuck some woman in there, um, and he didn't even get a chance to test positive. They sent them home. They, they didn't play. Uh, you know, the NBA was on their game. The players were on their game. And I can't say enough for two people. I can't say enough. Of course, Adam Silver, the commissioner, did a phenomenal job. Of course, Michelle Robinson, the Players Association, she's the executive director. They did a phenomenal job. But two people really, really stand out. Chris Paul, who, was, who is the president of the Players Association, a perennial all-star, future Hall of Famer. Um, this guy, in terms of his willingness to play and play to the level that he played, while at the same time negotiating deals and stipulations on behalf of the players to make sure play could resume, you just can't say enough about the phenomenal job that he did and the level of credit that he deserves. And more importantly, just as important, is LeBron James. We can slice it any way we want to. This is the greatest player in the world right now. Uh, he ended up winning a fourth championship. But to be stuck in a bubble for 96 days, to be away from family, loved ones, and friends, to play the way that he played and keep his team as motivated and as focused as they needed to be in order to capture a championship and still carry that baton while bringing, bringing attention to the George Floyds of the world, the Breonna Taylors of the world and others, when we were talking about African-Americans and, and, and law enforcement officials, you just can't say enough about all the stuff that was on LeBron James' shoulders and the way that he handled himself and his team, enabling the, the Los Angeles Lakers to walk away with the 17th title in franchise history. You just can't say enough about it. Well, you know, I'm, I'm gonna turn it over, but I'll just let you know, if you ever come to my office and visit me in New York, I've got a huge picture of Jackie Robinson in my office. And on the other side of the office, I got Muhammad Ali, who are two of my heroes because 
they were originals and you know how much heat Jackie Robinson took to be in the major leagues. And a lot of the peace and social justice that we have found in our society has been moved by men and women of sports who had that level of courage and had that level of tenacity. Of course, you know, uh, the champ, when I think about the GOAT, Muhammad Ali, what he was like in the 60s and what he stood for, uh, which everyone is still fighting for today. So yes. I'm going to turn it over to Darcy here, Stephen A. Um, but, you know, if, if we get close, I'm going to start calling you Anthony after your middle name, okay? So you'll, be, you'll be known as Stephen Ant, okay? No problem. Close. All right? no problem. Go ahead, All Darcy. Right, I know you got some audience participation questions. Yeah, I couldn't let Stephen A. out of here without talking a little shop uh, with the goat when it comes to uh, TV personality. You know, I grew up watching SportsCenter. It, you know, it was appointment television for me when I was younger. Uh, and, you know, sports media has evolved with the advent of the iPhone and, you know, on-demand clips. But, you know, Stephen A., in my opinion, has become the appointment television for ESPN uh, in 2020 and even you know, prior to this. But I want to I build on that <clears throat> conversation about social justice issues a little bit. And LeBron mm -hmm. James, I always find it amusing that sometimes the hate that's directed at him uh, for certain things that he does and people accuse him of being inauthentic. But I think as much as anyone, he's given other athletes the courage. You know, you had people like Colin Kaepernick who, who stepped forward as well, but given players the courage to really make social justice a big part of their identity. Uh, do you think that we're at a tipping point uh, in our society today? And do you think athletes have led us to that tipping point where we're really going to see some of these social justice and racial justice issues start to turn and, and reach a more equitable society? Well, my direct answer to that question is that we'd better be making a turn. We'd better be moving in that direction because if not, athletes today are more empowered than ever before. And as a result, there's going to be a hefty price paid uh, by corporate America and beyond, make no mistake about it. Uh, what a lot of folks don't realize is that they keep forgetting the communities these guys come from. You might become rich and famous, you might become wealthy, but to a modern day athlete in particular, you never forget home. Because if you do, they'll, they, they, they may not forget about you, but you'll be a pariah. And nobody wants to feel like a pariah from their own hometown. You just don't want that. From, and when I say hometown, I'm talking about the streets that you come from. It could be inner city streets across the United States of America. You know, and I often, on, on many occasions, I've often told white bosses this. White folks come to work with a job to do every day. Black folks come with a responsibility. They look at me when Trayvon Martin got uh, shot by, by George Zimmerman. Um, they looked, the black community looked at me and said, Stephen A, you got to talk about this. Stephen A, you got to say this. You got to say that. Now, I never feel compelled to say what anyone wants me to say. I say what the hell I want to say, what I feel. But I do feel compelled to make sure their voices are heard. I do feel compelled to make sure that whatever message the collective whole of our community has that they want disseminated, that I make sure that I express that and disseminate that to the masses. So the masses will know. I feel no obligation to agree with it or disagree with it. But I do feel an obligation to make sure that people from my community are heard. And I think if I feel that way, imagine how some of these athletes feel. Now they're not on national TV every day and I get that, but they do have social media accounts, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, in the millions, in some cases, the tens of millions, in some cases, over a hundred million. And so their reach is incredibly extensive. When you combine that with the wealth that they have at their disposal, or rather I'd like to say rich because to me, Wealth and riches is two different things, but these guys are rich. And so they've got enough cachet, enough muscle in the public eye to really, really make some noise and resonate in a very, very profound fashion. I would caution corporate America to make sure they hear that loud and clear and they operate accordingly. Because one thing is absolutely positively true. The days of these dudes being timid and shy and apprehensive have rapidly come to an end, at least for some of them. Too much influence in social media and beyond, too much influence with the younger generation is what they have to sit idly by and ignore some of the transgressions that have taken place in our society. That's what they were doing this summer. That's what they were doing since COVID took place. That's what they were doing since George Floyd got killed and what have you. And I don't anticipate that it's going to stop if they're able to look at America and say, you haven't changed one bit. You're the same damn way you've always been. 
If America elects to be that way, there's going to be a problem. Yeah, we've had uh, really successful, prominent African-American business people on this program, and, and we've heard them talk about how they don't, they don't always love having to speak up about these types of issues throughout their career. They attribute some of their success to just, you know, pr- just blending in and, and not having to consider themselves, you know, different than everybody else. But today they have no choice. You know, they feel yeah. like, you know what, I have to lift up my brothers and sisters and I have to to speak out and I have to be active on these issues because I have no choice. It's important that everybody also understands why. It's not just because of that. It's because the choice of being quiet no longer exists. That's the real issue here. So because you are now compelled to speak up, that means you have to take a side. Now you can take the side or you could take the side of your community and speak up and speak out about issues relevant to your community. These athletes find themselves in that untenable position and they have no choice but to embrace it. Some love it because they love having a voice and they finally get an opportunity to express themselves knowing millions are gonna hear them. Some are very reluctant to do it because they know how they feel is going to cost them in some capacity, either in corporate America or it's gonna cost them a price with their own community. Right. I want to shift gears a little bit to talk about sort of the business of sports and the business of sports media. So Disney just announced they're giving you another show on their ESPN Plus uh, streaming service. We're seeing this massive movement towards streaming. You have Netflix that's disrupted the entire entertainment industry. Uh, Warner Media announced they're going to start, you know, simulcasting their movies on HBO Max. Uh, Disney Plus has obviously been a great success at your parent company. How do you think uh, we're going to continue to see sports media evolve in a world where, uh, you know, media rights are so valuable and expensive, and so entertaining people in different ways on different platforms is going to be so important? Well, I think you're going to see cable suffer to a degree because outside of live events, why not go direct to streaming? Why not go direct to consumer? Uh, it's, it's, it's a more feasible and profitable way, it appears, to go about doing your business. When you have to pay cable operators and things of that nature, that's going to compromise your bottom line to some degree, which is why I think you've seen layoffs across the board everywhere. As it pertains to me, my show is going to be called Stephen A's World. Um, it's going to be the lighter version. I'm going to be looking to have fun and make people laugh and enjoy themselves and have a good time because we all know I bring the heat on ESPN, whether it's on Sports Center, whether it's on First Tape whether it's when I'm hosting my own NBA show, that Stephen A is, is going to always be there, but there is a lighter, more fun side to me, sort of that late night feel, because my ultimate aspiration is to actually host a late night show, the way Arsenio Hall and Jay Leno and David Letterman and guys like that once did. My ultimate aspiration is to actually do that one day. So that's an aspiration that I have, and I think that this is going to go in the direction of showing my willingness and hopefully my ability to do such a thing. But again, to answer the question directly, when you see these athletes getting involved, athletes are exploring the business side of things. They understand content a little bit better than they've been given credit for because they've been the content providers, not just because of their play on the court or field of play, but the interviews that they've done, the statements that they've made, the way that they've resonated in social media and beyond. The memes that they've seen put out there in social media and what have you, it gives you the impression that you might have an elevated level of knowledge when it comes to content providing. And as a result, it makes you gung-ho about sticking your fingers into that bowl to sort of see where that will take you. Because we all know that no matter what people make in front of the camera, there's always people making a lot more that are behind the camera. And so these guys see those kind of things transpire. You also have to take into account the, 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 the individuals that they run into, go to a Lakers game. You'll see that, uh, you know, folks from Disney, you'll see folks from Fox and other networks. You'll see directors, producers in Hollywood and beyond. When these folks go about the business of ingratiating yourself with you, with themselves with you and allowing you to do the same and you make those kind of connections and then you see the kind of things that they want to do in the world of television, streaming and beyond as it pertains to content, it gets you excited about the possibilities of what you might be able to do if you were so lucky to be afforded such an opportunity. So those kind of things are the things these, these players are thinking about because they want a stream of revenue. Remember, our careers are going on. I'm 53, and as far as I'm concerned, I'm literally barely in my prime. 
I got about 15, 20 years left in this business as far as I'm concerned. You know, you guys, the same thing. These players, they're, they're, most guys' careers are over by 30. They're lucky enough, some at 35. Some football players, the Tom Brady's of the world, Drew Brees of the world, are very fortunate to be in their 40s. Well, what the hell are you going to do with the rest of your life? You start thinking about those things. And that's why they venture into this, this business realm to the degree that they're doing so, because they're looking for an outlet where they don't have to step away from the, the cheers, the adulation, and all of these other things to being obsolete. They want to play different roles. They don't mind stepping away from the cheer, the crowd, but they don't want to step from stardom to being obsolete. That's a bit too extreme for them in the stomach. And as a result, that's why they're hungry to do things in this business. And I don't blame them. Right. Well, switching gears again, I want to talk about leadership a little bit. So I'm a native North Carolinian, uh, but you're a New Yorker. Anthony's a New Yorker. You guys have suffered through you know, many decades of subpar performance from your professional sports franchises. Uh, I'll leave it there. Uh, but it just it brings me to a question. We have a lot of corporate executives that tune into Salt Talks. And so relating business leadership and you know, sports leadership and sports business leadership, what in your observation, you know, viewing up close the dysfunction of some of the New York franchises and also, you know, having relationships with the very successful franchise owners and leadership in those organizations. What are the characteristics of a good and bad uh, franchise in sports? Well, first of all, the, the, the bad characteristics are people that hate working for you for a multitude of reasons. You cut corners, uh, you, you take shortcuts, uh, winning is not your top priority. Uh, mediocrity is not something that you appear to have a problem with. Uh, those kind of things definitely give you a sour taste in your mouth if you're a professional sports team, a professional athlete, what have you. You really don't want to have much to do with that. Uh, those that have winning situations, uh, yeah, it's associated with excellence, but it involves the excellence of the culture as opposed to the bottom line. You know, if you're a performer, what you want to do is look at your superiors and say, I have everything I need to win. It's on me. You're not running from the challenge of it being placed on your shoulders. Uh, you're despondent, in fact, when you're in an environment with, that you don't deem to be conducive to winning. It's an incredibly, incredibly tough situation to be in when you, don't, you know that you could be doing better uh, and your product could be doing better but the decisions by the higher ups is what's holding you back. Because when you see something like that happen, you don't wanna hear them talk to you about winning because you know that they could snap their fingers and make decisions that are conducive to winning and they just refuse to do it. And so as a result of that, that's certainly not a winning formula. That's something to take into consideration. But what a winning formula is those, you know, particularly as it pertains to bosses, inspiring people to wanna to work for you, to wanna work with you, um, being committed to excellence, showing them that it's not just about your excellence, it's about theirs as well and how we all rise together. Magic Johnson was famous for telling his teammates, man, we win, we all shine. You can see me on the commercial doing something for Converse or McDonald's or something like that. But trust you me, endorsement deals are going to come your way. Popularity is going to come your way. The perks and the cachet that comes associated with success and winning, they're going to come your way. And he was unapologetic about it. And he was very sincere in projecting that kind of imagery. And it came to fruition. They saw that he was right and it inspired them to perform with him and for him even more. When you look at Pat Riley in South Beach with the Miami Heat, well, he's got rings. LeBron James wants to depart from Cleveland and he comes to Miami. And even though he had already talked with Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh about joining forces, when he sat down with the Miami Heat and everybody had presentation and films and all of these other things to appeal to LeBron James, Pat Riley sat in front of him and put down five rings and said, do you want one of these? Yes or no? And that's what it took. We taught that to the business world and Larry Bird's got a group of, with 13 other people and they're trying to buy the Charlotte basketball franchise at the time. And, you know, the asking price is $300 million and Larry Bird's group has about 250, 260. They're about 40 million short, but he's Larry Bird and they want to give him time to get the assets necessary in order to buy the franchise, et cetera, et cetera. All of this stuff is being talked about. But 
Bob Johnson, former owner for BET, knows Jerry Colangelo. Both of them went to the University of Illinois. There was a connection there. What happens? Jerry Colangelo, the owner for the Phoenix Suns at the time, he's got an in with the NBA owners because he's been associated with the NBA since the 60s. So he gets Bob Johnson to the negotiating table. And Bob Johnson sits at the negotiating table and tells these board of governors, which consist of each owner for the team or the chief executive they choose to appear as their board of governor. And, they show, and he shows up and he said, I appreciate the greatness of Larry Bird. He's done a lot for the NBA. It's very, very special. But last time I checked, this was a business deal. And here is my financial portfolio. And his financial portfolio was worth $1.7 billion. And the next words out of his mouth was, who do I cut the check to? So we have to understand it's networking, it's connections, it's all of that stuff too. But at the end of the day, what's the rule of the game that you're playing? He knew the rules and it was finances. Pat Riley knew the rules. It was rings. Magic Johnson knew the rules. It was competing for and putting yourself in position to win championships. And they made sure to articulate and illuminate that agenda for all to see, showing that it wasn't just a benefit to them, but to the very people they were trying to appeal to. And as a result, everybody bought in because of it. And that's why they are who they are. And that most of us aspire to be who they are. And Bob Johnson proceeded to name the team after himself, the Bobcats, and then flipped it that to our good friend. Idea, but I hear you. And then we flipped it to our good friend, Michael Jordan, who I still think Michael's going to turn it around. He's a North Carolina guy like me. I hope so. I hope so. He's a friend. So last question. We can't uh, let the preeminent NBA analyst in the world leave without giving some predictions for the season that's starting uh, next week. So who do you think wins the NBA championship Lakers. this year? Lakers going to repeat? Uh, they had their roster. You're the champion, and you had the best offseason. Right. Had and a better offseason than anybody. Dennis Schrader, uh, uh, Schroeder, rather, and Marcus Saul and Montrell's Harrell. Um, I mean, my goodness. They had the best offseason. Tucker looks like a player. Yeah, he does. So, so what are some teams and players that may be not on the mainstream radar or, or people that follow the NBA less closely that you think are going to take a big step forward this season? Well, I think that, listen, in the, in the Western Conference, the elite teams are the Lakers, the Clippers, the Dallas Mavericks. Uh, they definitely stand out. There's no question about that. Houston's taking a step back because Russell Westbrook's is gone. James Harden doesn't want to be there. A trade seems imminent at some point. So they're not going to be the same. But in terms of an up-and-coming team, look out for the Phoenix Suns. Devin Booker is a star. Uh, you know, and, and you, you've got uh, DeAndre Ayton and others that can play on this squad, there's something special. Don't ignore them. Chris Paul is there now as well, so we can't ignore that. You got to pay attention to the Warriors. I know Klay Thompson is out for the year, but Steph Curry has returned. Uh, they drafted this kid, James Wiseman, at number two out of Memphis, even though he only played about three games. Uh, they, they still have some of the pieces they picked up, Kelly Oubre. They've got Andrew, Andrew Wiggins. Uh, you know, this kid, Pascal, that was on the bench for them averaging 14 year, a game last year. He's going to play an integral role as well. So when you consider that, they should be a playoff team. And when you consider um, once Clay Thompson gets back, not this upcoming season, but next year, they might be right back in the championship picture. When you look at Portland, they picked up Robert Covington, the pair with uh, C.J. McCollum and, and Damian Lillard and those boys. And so you can't ignore them either. That's the Western Conference. I would say Phoenix, to answer your question directly. In the East, uh, you've got Philly, Boston, Toronto, uh, Miami and Milwaukee, especially with the Greek freak re-upping for five years, $228 million. Were you surprised about that? Were you surprised little, about him re-upping? I was a little surprised because I thought that he would weigh his options. I thought that Pat Riley and South Beach would have a chance. But if you saw the, 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 the documentary on him and his family, how poor he was, how much they struggled and starved and what have you, to be embraced by the Milwaukee community the way that he was, for the organization to do things for his family. Like his brother is on the roster for crying out loud. No disrespect to his brother, but there's no way in hell his brother would be on an NBA roster if it were not for him. But that's the case. They took care of him in every way. And so they appealed to him in a, in a, in a way that said, hey, you know what? He's like, I'm in a great, great situation. They love me, so I'm going to stick with that. But I, th I look at those teams. 
um, and, and Milwaukee, anybody can come out of the East from those, those, those teams, Milwaukee, Boston, uh, Miami, and Philly are the four. We'll see about Boston, even though I love Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. I question their depth. But the team that I'm looking at right now uh, is Atlanta in terms of what could end up happening to them. I mean, this was a horrible team last year, but Trey Young could really, really play. They've got some other pieces. They just added Rondo to their squad as well, uh, who's a guy that knows how to run a basketball team. And so you got to keep your eyes on one of those up and coming teams. Not that they're going to win a championship or anything like that, but that they can make things interesting than, than it once was. You know, we, we knew the kid was going to get signed because we had Mark Lazary, the owner of the Milwaukee Bucks, on a soft talk. And you could tell from the way he answered that question, he wasn't letting that kid out of Milwaukee. Right. <laughs> well, listen, all you could do is offer them all the money in the world, but it's up to them to take it or not. In the case of Kevin Durant, he turned it down. In the case of LeBron James, he turned it down. In the case of Anthony Davis, he turned it down. So it wasn't a matter of the money because you knew that they were going to offer him the max. It was just about what he wanted to do. But he said it best. He said, they embraced me when no one else would. They were looking at me. They saw this kid out of Greece. You got to remember the Greek freak. He's gained 57 pounds of muscle. Yeah. He arrived in the NBA. So he's he's a freak of nature that he no one saw that coming. No one saw that coming. Steven, see if you can get me introduced to his trainer. Can you help me with that? Because I need 57 pounds of muscle. I don't I don't need I don't think any of us need 57 pounds of muscle at this age, but I will tell you this, I can use some of those muscles. There ain't no doubt about that. I can certainly use the stamina, I can tell you that. Tough kid. Well, you've been absolutely terrific. Thank you so much for joining us on Salt Talks. Uh I wish you and your family an amazing Christmas holiday and uh, great New Year's. Hopefully we'll get you back. Uh, we got a lot, lot to talk about. We could have 20 salt talks to you, Stephen A. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. And if you don't mind me giving myself a plug, remember Stephen A's World debuts on ESPN Plus January 11th, Monday, January 11th. I'll be on every Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday because I'll still be doing my NBA show on Wednesday. So I'll be What's on the your Twitter handle. What's your Twitter handle? Oh, at Stephen A. Smith. All right. All right. Stephen A's World. Go out and get that Disney bundle. You know, I have three young kids. Disney Plus is a hit in my household. I got my ESPN Plus for, you know, when they go to bed and I can consume some uh, sports content. You also get Hulu. It's the best deal in the world. And uh, let's make Steven's parent company happy. Go out and get that, that Disney bundle and watch Stephen A's World on uh, ESPN Plus starting January 11th. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Oh, by the way, I, don't, I want to say this to y'all too. Not only am I hosting it, I'm the executive producer of it, and my, comp my production company is co-producing it, Mr. SAS Productions. So I'm the executive producer, the host, and co-producing it as a company. I'm stepping into your world, Anthony. I'm trying to learn from you. Now I, well, now I know it's going to be super successful. I knew it before that, but now I triply know it. You know. Love, man. Will you will you be well? God bless you, man. Hopefully we can get you to one of our live events before too Absolutely. Long. Looking forward to it. God bless and happy holidays to all of y'all. You too, brother. Thank all you. Right.